Father God, thank you so much for Jovan. Thank you for that testimony, that testimony of faith and all that you're doing and will continue to do in his life. And Father, I pray that anyone whose heart that that touched, uh, uh, that you just draw them to your son Jesus uh, in the name and authority of the Lord Jesus. Now, as we go to your word, Father, I pray that you'd open it to us and build our faith and help us to walk by faith every single day of our lives. And let your Holy Spirit rest on me to bring your word to your people today through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And so here uh, we're picking this up. Uh, Paul is on his way to Rome. He's a prisoner uh, right now. And uh, so they're having to take him to Rome because he's appealed uh, to Caesar. And, uh, and so uh, it's about, they're about to set sail for Italy and we pick up verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 27. And when it was decided that we should, set sail, set, we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of, uh, well, you can kind of guess what that word is, uh, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. We put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, We came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Canidus as the wind did not allow us to go farther. We sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, 
all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet, now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong, whom I worship, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And be cold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach." But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come on him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. 
Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Well, it's an amazing story, and it's good to see these stories in context rather than just taking little bits and pieces here and there. Because so often when we're reading a text like this, we get the feeling, you know, it's taken about five minutes to read it, and so we thought, okay, all of this has happened really quickly. You know, it was in, it was out, it was up and down, and kind of done. But what we don't realize is that from the beginning of chapter 27 all the way to where we moved on there in, in chapter 28, we're talking about several months having transpired. There were at least three months on the island of Malta, and we know that they were 14 days uh, in the turmoil of the sea in the, that storm. That's a pretty big storm. But uh, I've been to the Adriatic in the wintertime, and those nor'easters that come through there, they're pretty violent winds that come through. And so we're talking about a good six months transpiring here from the beginning of 27 all the way to when we ended in chapter 28. And these were a very difficult period of time, a very difficult six months. I mean, they're going on the ship. Paul, he gets his, a rare chance to say, hey, I told you so. I told you so. Uh, because he tells them, hey, we shouldn't set out yet. We should wait. And of course, the centurion, he's going to listen to the captain of the ship a little bit more. So they set out and they go through all these problems. And Paul at first says, hey, we're going to have significant loss that's going to be there. But obviously, Paul is spending time. He's praying. He's engaging with the Lord so that he can come to a point in time after having been visited by an angel, uh, and the angel says, uh, listen, you've saved the people on the ship, basically. By your faith, there's no going to be any loss of life, but you're going to lose the ship. And then they go on, and, and Paul shares this, and then he encourages people to eat. And you notice what he did there, too. After they'd eaten some bread, what did they do? They throwed the rest of the wheat off the ship. So at that point in time, they get rid of all the extra food that they have on the ship. So that's a pretty big commitment. Then, of course, they, they run aground on Malta. We've actually been to the bay there. It's called St. Paul's Bay now, where they believe that Paul and the, the ship ran aground. Uh, and uh, it, Malta is a fairly small island, so you can see how people from all over the island would gather and things like that. And then, of course, you know, he gets there, and uh, they set up a fire, and then he gets bitten by a viper. And then one of the funniest moments in the whole story is where they're all waiting for him to die. You know, can you imagine that? Okay, he's going to die pretty soon. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, watching a cricket match, or not quite a game of football, because cricket unfolds a little bit more slowly. You're watching, you just keep waiting for something to happen. And it doesn't happen. And so they go from thinking he must be a murderer to thinking he's a god. 
and, and all this. And then he's entertained by Publius. And then he goes and Publius' dad is sick. So he goes and he heals his father. And before they know it, he's healing a whole bunch of people. Everybody that's sick on the island gets healed by the Apostle Paul. And the healings result in a miraculous provision. So when it's time finally for them, after three months, to set sail again, the people of the island are very generous toward them and set sail with, 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 with much bounty. And the key dynamic in all of this thing, as you're seeing from start to finish, is that Paul, throughout this process, is walking by faith. Everything that's happening here, every good outcome that happens in this story, happens because Paul is walking by faith. There's a power in faith, there's a reality in faith, And it doesn't mean that all of a sudden we're going to get everything that we want. And it doesn't mean that life is going to be easy for us. But there is a power in faith that takes us through some very tumultuous times and brings us out on the other side if we are indeed walking by faith, if we are indeed living by faith. But I think the truth is that most Christians particularly most Christians in the West, do not walk by faith. Most of us simply do not live by faith. We talk about faith, we think about faith, but we don't live by faith. And it's a challenge to us. It's a challenge to us. And there are certain dynamics, there are certain things that really tell us that we are not living by faith, that we are not walking by faith like Paul did. I'd like to list four here. What keeps us from walking by faith as Paul did? Number one is control. The truth is, most of us want to be in charge of our own lives. We want to be in charge of our destiny. We want to be in control of what happens and what doesn't happen. One of the things that you see about Paul's story here, throughout this entire process, Paul is not in control at any point in time. There's no point in time where Paul's leading this process. There's no point in time where Paul is deciding where he's going. There's no point in time where Paul is in control of his destiny. And the desire for control is an enemy of faith. To the degree that you want to be in control of your life and in control of your destiny, you are not walking by faith. And certainly to the degree that you want to be in control of other people, you are not living by faith. The only biblical form of control is self-control. You can control your thoughts. You can control your actions. But you can't control anything else, really. But the problem is, so many Christians, they want to be in control. They want to dictate their destiny. They want to set the direction of their life. They want to be the people who set the sat-nav and also who do the driving. And they really would prefer that Jesus be kind of in the back seat giving us suggestions and having nice conversations with us and wanting 
uh, wanting the best for us, telling us all the best services areas to stop in, to take a break. But if we're in control, God's not. And control and the desire to control our lives and our destinies is an enemy of faith. Because frankly, when you are walking by faith, you are not in control. To walk by faith, by definition, means to say, God, you are in control of my life. You are in control of my destiny. You are in control of the directions that I go in. The problem is, we all think that we're kind of like God, knowing that if I could just control the outcomes, I would get to the place where I would want to be. If I was just in control, then I could guarantee that what I got, the end results, would be something that would please me. The problem is, that's never the case. And you being in control does not guarantee that you will come out with a pleasing outcome. In fact, to the degree that you try to be in control, that's likely the degree to which you will mess everything up. So control is one of the great enemies of walking by faith. You know, there's another enemy of walking by faith, and that's common sense. Common sense. Uh, I'm not against common sense. Not at all. I think, actually, people need a little bit more common sense. But we have a tendency to want to live by common sense, to live by our own wisdom, rather than live by the wisdom of God. And as Christians, we make up a lot of things that sound good, but they're probably not really. They sound good, but perhaps they're not at all. I mean, we're filled with all these things. Like uh, a few years ago, there was a, there was a survey done, and uh, a large portion of Americans, I think it was actually more than 50%, but I'm not totally sure at that time, believed that cleanliness is next to godliness was in the Bible. But you know, that's not in the Bible. It doesn't say that at all. And we come up with a lot of these sayings. You know, one of the other things that I've heard frequently that people have said, and it really sounds good, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. You know, that's not biblical at all. There's no place in the Bible that says the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. There's no place that says Jesus or the Heavenly Father is a gentleman. In fact, Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Holy Spirit moves in a, a rushing mighty wind and an all-consuming fire. And many times we like to say, well, well, the Holy Spirit's a gentleman uh, in order to avoid doing some things that the Holy Spirit might actually be leading us to do, but we find rather uncomfortable. And we say, well, the Holy Spirit cannot possibly do that because the Holy Spirit's a gentleman. The Holy Spirit can't possibly knock me down under his power because he's a gentleman. I remember a time years, years ago, I think it was about 1989, uh, October of 1989. It might have been 1990, but I think it was October of 1989. I was in St. Louis, Missouri uh, at a vineyard church. It was the vineyard church that Randy Clark was pastor of at the time. Uh, and, uh, and I remember I was standing there and I was worshiping the Lord and I have my hands up, you know, and I'm just worshiping the Lord. And I'm really enjoying the worship. Uh, and, the, and the Lord says, Rod, kneel. 
And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. I, I'm worshiping you, God. You know, I would rather not kneel. I, you know, I'm just going to worship you. And the Lord speaks to him again. It says, Rod, kneel. No, Lord, you know, can't you see? I got my hands lifted up. Why would I need to kneel? I've got my hands lifted up. I'm worshiping you. I'm praising you. And the Lord said a third time, kneel. Now, let me tell you, if the Lord tells you to do something once, you better do it. If he tells you to do it twice, be on the alert. If he tells you to do it three times, something's going to happen. I promise you. And so I said, no, no, I'm just going I'm, I'm to worship you. Now, now, if the Holy Spirit was a gentleman, he just kind of moved on at that point and found somebody else. But at that moment, I don't know if you ever know, if you cross your legs too long and your leg goes to sleep, you know, it gets numb, you know that feeling? Well, about that time, I started having this numbness hit my toes. And I thought, well, this is kind of strange. And it, it starts moving up my legs. And when it hit me right about my hips, whoop, I'm on the floor. And I'm kneeling. And I'm crying. And people are gathering around me praying. And I'm a bit uncomfortable. Common sense said, well, I didn't need to kneel. But... God doesn't pay attention to my common sense. And there are so many times, you know, we're taught to do things that sound like common sense. Oh, you know, don't, don't commit too much time to spending time with God's people, you know. It, it, you, you can't do too much. You've got to lead a balanced life and all of that. And it sounds like common sense. But so often, when people are saying these common sense things, they're doing it to worm their way out of living by faith. And it's a way for them to do what they want to do in their way, in their timing, and just justify it with religious language. And I've heard so many Christians do this. They justify their own behavior by their religious language or their doctrines or their Bible verses. And I, obviously we believe in the scriptures here. But it's so easy to take a verse out of scripture and make it say what you want it to say. And a lot of people do that. And this kind of common sense is an enemy to walking by faith. And then there's a third enemy to walking by faith, and that is conditions. Conditions. A lot of us set up conditions for God. God, I will marry whomever you want me to marry. Just make her skinny, beautiful, and really smart, but not smarter than me. And uh, let her make a lot of money so I can live a good life. Now that's conditions. God, I will follow you wherever you want me to go except to Birmingham. I don't like Birmingham. I uh, don't like the people there. Uh, God, I will do anything you want me to do as long as it makes me a comfortable living and I can get the right kind of income and have the right kind of people. God, I will go to any church you want me to go to as long as the people are just about like me and they talk like me and they really like me and I like them. And we put all these conditions on our lives and conditions on what we will do and how we will follow God. And when you put a condition on it, you're no longer living by faith, you're living by demand. When you put a condition on it, you're no longer living in obedience, you're living in selfishness. And we like to disguise the selfishness. We can even make the conditions sound really good and really appealing. 
Like, this is what I'm really called to, or this is what I'm really suited to, when actually it's God who knows these things. And we cannot put conditions on this. Paul didn't say, hey, I'm going to follow you, God, as long as I have a nice, comfortable journey to Rome. He's not putting the conditions on, on, on his situation. He's following the Lord and allowing the Lord to take him wherever the Lord wants him to go. And notice, because Paul lived before the Lord unconditionally, possibly more than 200 people's lives were saved, and dozens were healed, and provision came, and all kinds of miracles occurred because Paul refused to put conditions. Then there's a fourth thing that is an enemy to faith. And this one will sound kind of strange, but it's commitment. Commitment is an enemy to faith. Commitment. Now, this is tough because there's a lot of people that say, commit your life to Jesus. But the Bible doesn't tell us to commit our lives to Jesus. It doesn't use commitment in the way that we use commitment. Because commitment is selective. Commitment is selective. If I'm going to make a commitment, I choose what I commit. If I'm going to make a commitment, if I say, God, I'm going to commit my life to you, and I'll give you my money, I'll give you my time, uh, I'll give you my house, but not my car. And we do that, and people do that all the time. They don't say that, obviously. We don't say that. But that's the effect of what Christians do so often. We give our, make a commitment We make a commitment. We make a sacrifice, which is where we choose what we're going to give instead of giving everything. And commitments are nice, but the gospel calls us for more than a commitment. And faith is much more, faith is much more than a commitment. Faith is much more than a commitment. So what does it mean to walk by faith like Paul did? How can we do this? Well, first of all, we have to release control. You got to let go. There was a great old saying that says, let go and let God. There's a lot of truth to that. You have to release control of your life. Either Jesus will be Lord of your life or you will be Lord of your life but no one can serve two masters. You cannot have Jesus as Lord and have yourself as Lord. You cannot say Jesus is Lord but say I am in control. The only way to live by faith is to begin by releasing control and saying God my life belongs to you because I was bought with a price. The second thing to live by faith, as Paul did, we must relish obedience over common sense. We can make common sense, we can common sense, if you will, our way out of almost anything. We can reason our way out of any form of obedience. But if we're going to live by faith, we must relish obedience over our common sense. 
And that means we need to do what God tells us to do when God tells us to do it, even if it doesn't make sense to us. And there are many times when God doesn't make sense, when God doesn't operate by common sense. And there are many times when actually God contradicts our common sense. When he tells us to do something that makes no common sense. But we have to relish obedience over our common sense. The third thing, we need to replace our conditions with a willingness to suffer and persevere. We need to replace our conditions with a willingness to suffer or be uncomfortable and persevere. A lot of folks, uh, we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit here at City Temple. We encourage people to ask God to receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit and practice the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But I can't tell you the number of times over the years that I've had people come up to me and say, you know, Rod, I, I really like the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I really would like, you know, this gift, this gift, and this gift, but I really would rather not have tongues. You know, so it's God, I'll take any gift of the Spirit that you give me except speaking in tongues, because that's kind of weird to me, you know, so I don't really want to do that. Uh, And you know what? When you say that, you're no longer walking by faith. You're putting conditions on God. When you say that, you're no longer submitting yourself to the Lord. You're putting your conditions on God. Now, that doesn't mean if you ask for a gift of of tongues or any other gift that God's going to give it to you. I asked God for probably 20 years or more for the gift of tongues, and he didn't give it to me. And then finally he did. But God is in control. You cannot put your conditions on the Lord. I know a lot of people that want to be prayed for. And, and I've, I've seen people say, you know, Lord, I want to be prayed for, and, and I really would like this guy to pray for me, but please don't, don't let me fall. You know, don't let me be slain in the Spirit or these other things that happen. I'm not saying you have to be slain in the Spirit to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. In fact, I've got to deal with God on this. You know, I don't have conditions. So, so I've said, Lord, if you want me to fall, I'll fall but you need to be the one that knocks me down. You know, I'm not going to let somebody just come along and push me down for for his own sense of well-being. But if the Lord wants to knock me down, he can knock me down. If the Lord wants to paint me me blue and hang me upside down in the tree, the Lord can paint me blue and hang me upside down in the tree, although I will ask him for a little identification. Just a confirmation there. The thing is, we cannot put conditions Instead, instead, we must replace our conditions with a willingness to suffer, a willingness to be uncomfortable, a willingness to persevere and do what God's told us to do. Finally, if we're going to live by faith, we need to require surrender of ourselves. You must require surrender. There's no such thing as commitment in the kingdom. There's only surrender. And the surrender that God requires of us is an unconditional surrender. It's where we say, God, my life belongs to you, and I give it to you because you bought it, and my life is yours, and I surrender fully and completely. 
And that's the only way of salvation. If you're thinking, well, I've just committed my life to Christ and and now I must be a disciple of Jesus because I've made a commitment, the commitment is not going to get you there. Only the surrender to Jesus will get you there. We must require surrender of ourselves. We must require surrender. And these things were absolutely key. You can see these all throughout this story with Paul. You can see how Paul surrendered to the Lord. You can see how Paul didn't put any conditions on his following God. You can see how Paul walked by faith every step of the way. And that's what God calls us to do. So if you're here and you've kind of realized as I've been talking here, maybe the Holy Spirit's been convicting you a little bit that perhaps you haven't surrendered. Perhaps you have been putting conditions on following. Perhaps you've been living by your common sense instead of simply obeying. If you're here and these things have resonated with you in any way, shape, or form, the way we respond to sin, and it is sin, is to repent. To say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for these conditions. I'm sorry for my commitment as opposed to my surrender. I'm sorry for trying to live by by common sense. I'm sorry for trying to be in control of my life. And I choose now to surrender to you, to relinquish control, to live by obedience, and to have unconditional surrender. And if you do that, by the Spirit of God, you are forgiven and set free. But then we need to take a step further. And we need to say, God, fill me with faith. I need more faith. I've not been walking by faith. And I want to walk by faith. Give me faith as you gave Paul faith. And let me see the same kinds of outcomes that you've given to Paul. And know that if you pray that kind of prayer, the Lord is gracious and merciful. He will hear you and he will respond. The call for us is to walk by faith. To walk by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To walk by faith so that we can see Miracles happen all around us. Let's pray. Father, as a church, we admit to you that corporately we've not always walked by faith. That so many times we've tried to be in control, so many times we've put conditions on our obedience. So many times we live by common sense, not seeking after you. So many times we have not really surrendered ourselves. And Father, we ask that you would forgive us individually and corporately of these things. And cause to rise up in us a renewed faith that we might live by faith as Paul lived by faith. And that we might see miracles happen as Paul saw miracles happen, bringing glory and honor to Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.